True success for a man is the satisfaction that comes from knowing he did all he could to become the best version of himself. And that's what I'm here to help you with. Hey there, this is Dee Lauderdale, and thanks for listening to the Playbook for Men show. My guest today is Master Chief Petty Officer Michael Riggs. Um, fascinating interview, fascinating conversation. This guy is uh, everything that you think of when you think of badass. Uh, been in the Navy uh, since 1991. He is, uh, his specialty is uh, explosive ordnance disposal. Uh, he has been deployed with uh, SEAL Team 2 to Iraq, uh, been deployed a whole bunch of other places. I mean, if you could see his, uh, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will put his uh, his resume in the show notes just so you can read it because it's amazing. And now as he's getting ready to transition out of his Navy career, he is going to begin working on his Ph.D. in leadership. And that's where uh, this conversation really shined. He had some great insights, uh, some great real-life experiences, and some great stuff for us who are leaders who don't work in life and death for what it's like to be a leader when you truly are dealing with life and death with your decisions and how the people that depend on you are going to make it uh and it was just a fascinating fascinating interview and i really enjoyed it and i hope you will too mike riggs how you doing buddy Great, thanks for having me. Oh, listen, I, I am honored to have you. Uh, I'm honored to have uh, anyone who has spent the better part of their adult life serving our country in the military. Uh, and so, first off, from all of us that are listening, thank you for your service, and and we are in your you, we are in your debt. That's an honor and privilege to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, so Mike Riggs is my guest today, and you're going to learn a lot about him as we go through, but I'm just going to let him start off giving us just a little snippet bio uh, about where you grew up and, and just kind of a, a, a quick uh, early, early, what's the early life of Mike Riggs? What was it like? So I was uh, born and raised in Parkersburg, West Virginia, uh, lived there my entire life until I uh, joined the Navy at the age of 19. I uh, spent one unsuccessful freshman year at the West Virginia University of Parkersburg, where I was a criminal <laughs> justice major. Uh, I had a full-time job at Foodland, the grocery store in Indiana, where I went to school full-time. I tend to party a little bit full-time there as well, <laughs> and uh, studying full-time, so one of them gave way and it wasn't, uh, wasn't the studying or the studying gave way actually. <laughs> so, uh, next thing, you know, I had a buddy who decided to join the Navy and, uh, I had a grandfather who gave me some words of wisdom. What's that? He said, uh, Mikey, if you, if you ever find yourself without a, a, a direction in life, I, I recommend you join the Navy because he's both of my grandfathers joined in the, in the, in the Navy and they both served in World War II. Wow. And so one of the day we had a farm about 220 acres. And there was one day I remember we were hauling hay back to the farm from one of the fields 
And he had told me that on a ride back. And he said, you know, if you, if you ever find you don't have any direction, you just, you just join the Navy or join the military and specifically join the Navy because you always have three hot meals and a roof <laughs> over your head. And, and the funny thing is, you know, later on in life, I would sit in Afghanistan or Iraq and look up at the stars through my night vision goggles and eating MREs and, and kind of laugh and chuckle thinking about my grandfather. Well, but he, he never knew the crazy stuff that I'd eventually go do. Let me just say this part. I want to jump in because you said you were told that in an environment that I have been in, which is in the hay field. And let me just tell you, as a 15, 16, 14-year-old boy, there is no better motiv- uh, motivation to get an education or develop a skill set than being in a dang hay field in the middle of the summer. Oh, uh, uh, hay field uh, builds character. That, that, that builds character like nobody's business because I can remember my friends talking about uh, – what their what their plans were for the summer, and it seems always like the first cut was right after school let out, and everybody's going. Of course, West Virginia. I think one of the only vacation places is Myrtle Beach. That's where everybody goes for West Virginia. Okay, and, and so they'd all head to Myrtle Beach, and I'd head to the hayfield, and okay. we'd be out there, and it's eighty five, ninety degrees, and you can't wear board shorts and tank tops to go bale hay. Mm-mm. And we we bailed squares, so you had denim jeans on and flannel shirts so you didn't cut yourself didn't shred mm-hmm. your forearms and stuff from picking up the bales and heavy gloves on and you're out there all day long until the nighttime when you're putting it up into the barn you know and uh you just learned work ethic oh like my no gosh. other well i was a few hours south of you here in north alabama when i was in the hay field and so we just dealt with we wore short sleeves and i mean my forearms would just be it would look like somebody had taken a needle and mm-hmm. just pierced my skin up and down, and um, it was ju- it was just brutally hot. But you know what's funny about that, Mike? One summer, uh, so my uncle was a really big farmer, and he usually would call me about June and say, "Hey, it's about time to get in the field. Why don't you put a Why don't you put a team together?" So this was I didn't realize it then, but this was like my first leadership experience. So the first team I put together was far superior to any of the teams I had after that. So (laughs) I I learned about hiring people. But it's funny, all of those men that I hauled hay with, I'm still friends with today. And and, and it was brutal work. This would have been like, oh gosh, 79, 80, something like that. Uh, And we were making 12 bucks a day, working six days a week, 12 hours a day. And... And I still, uh, again, am friends with that. And it was, there were horrible conditions, but we didn't know any better. I mean, it's just, you needed a job and that's, that was the job you had. But I, I learned so much about building the, the team because the, the group I put together next year was not nearly as good as the team, the first team I had. I mean, it, it's funny. Here I am, I'm 56 years old and I still brag about the fact that at that time, the team that we had was hauling a thousand bales a day, including taking it to the barn and putting it up and coming back to the field. I mean, it was, it was just crazy, but there is something to be said about that hard life. Uh, cause it really did help later on when it was time to go to college. It was like, yeah, you better do something. Cause if not that, <laughs> that can be your future if you don't straighten up. Oh, that, that definitely, it, it puts things in perspective. So you joined the Navy and, but 
you ended up going into a specialty that I'm I'm really interested in why you chose it. You you did explosive ordnance disposal. Well, I why, first started out as an electronics technician. Right. So That's, why did you make yeah. the switch from electronic tech to EOD? Uh, I, I got a little bored, I guess. And, oh, so you want uh, to play with bombs because you were bored? <laughs> I, I, I just, it, it was a little, uh, I didn't quite fit in. In that, uh, in that specialty, I, I, and I wanted to challenge myself a little bit. Yeah. So there was a day I was stationed in Sicily, in Sigonella, Italy. It's an air station there. And I was working on this antenna. And my chief petty officer was nearby. And there was a, a CH-53 helicopter. And there were guys that were jumping out of it. They were doing static line parachuting. And I thought it was a SEAL team. Yeah. And uh, I was like, hey, Chief, I didn't know we had SEALs. What are the SEALs doing here? And he's like, no, dummy. That's the EOD guys. And I was like, well, well, what's that? I've been in the Navy for, I mean, four or five years at the time. I was like, I didn't know. I didn't know EOD got to, I didn't know they get to jump out of planes. And uh, he's like, yeah, they do all kinds of stuff. They jump and dive and shoot guns and blow stuff up. And I was like, wow, that's, that's cool. So, I, you know, I could do that or I could do this. So I just kind of stuck in my head. It kind of put a, you know, a little mental marker in my mind. And I, it just kind of, kind of, you know, just stuck with me there for a while and just kind of grew from there to, till it got to the point where I got my mom ended up got, she was sick around that time frame, and she ended up passing away from cancer at the age of uh, 45. So that kind of put things in perspective for me too, at that time of my life where, uh, I knew life could be short, Mm -hmm. obviously based on what happened to her. So I knew that some decisions had to be made for me, you know, and that, you know, uh, it kind of put a little fire, I guess, as well to, to pursue things, to just go after, you know, that if there's no better time than now to, to go after challenges or chase dreams or whatever. So, and I figured I always had this thing in my mind that, you know, I could be, I could be the 50 year old man on the porch and there are either only three things and it would be, I could be 50 sitting on a porch thinking I probably could have done it. I could be 50 sitting on a porch knowing that I tried and that just wasn't for me or by some crazy circumstance I could be 50 sitting on that porch going, well, that was a pretty cool ride. I actually did this. And, uh, well, I'm about two years from that. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I I interviewed a guy, uh, a few months ago who owns, um, uh, a big grill company in Augusta, Georgia, and has done super, super well. And, And I actually have one of his grills. That's how I found out about him. And I, and I asked him, I said, why in the world he was a used car dealer at the time and the economy tanked and he's trying to figure out something to do, uh, back in 08, 09. And for some crazy reason, he and his business partner decided let's sell pellet grills, which nobody was really doing back then. And I just asked him, I said, what gave you the motivation or the thought process to even try that? And he said three words said this is the way i've lived my life he said why not me yeah 
and I love that. And you're, and you're saying the same thing is, is to go. Yeah. I mean, it's out there, there's training and, um, why not? Let's just give it a shot because what's the worst thing that can happen. They, you didn't make it through EOD school or you didn't make it through jump school or whatever. Okay. Big deal. I, at least I gave it a shot. Didn't work. Hey, let's find out what we, what we can do. Cause I think so often as men, we sometimes settle into the, to the comfortable too early and we lose that edge to get out and try something a little different. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you, yes. you, you get, um, what is it? Oh gosh. I'm trying to remember the quote. It's something along the lines of, uh, the two most addictive sources, uh, substances in the world are heroin and a steady paycheck. Yes. And, and you certainly did not do that. One, one question I do have it. I, I don't know. Do the other, uh, armed forces, EOD folks go through jump school and t- stuff too, or is that just Navy that does jump school and dive school just, and just Navy right now? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause our mutual friend introduced us. And when he was telling me about that, that you had done through all that. And I was like, wow, I've never, I know some EOD guys and I've never heard of any of them jumping out of airplanes, but it sounds cool. So I was, I was reading your, uh, your bio. So you're into, you're into, uh, EOD and then I'm seeing, so you got, you've done deployments in Afghanistan and Iraq and one of them, or maybe a couple of them, you were, you were attached to uh, a SEAL team unit. So what do you do as an EOD guy when you're attached to a SEAL team unit? So the, the deployment and the workups are, are pretty long, uh, because we initially, I, I get my EOD team because I was the chief on that team, uh, the first one. And uh, so I, I get my team, get them together. Uh, we go through the EOD training phase, which is about six months long. We get certified in our EOD skill set. And then we chop over and then we start a, a, a training phase with the SEAL teams. And we start learning to shoot, move, and communicate on the SEAL platoon. Okay. And we integrate with them. And we go through all their their phases of uh, land warfare, uh, urban warfare, uh, mobility skill sets, and all that stuff to where, um, where we're an asset instead of a liability when we're on target. Gotcha. So now you're here at the, at the end of your military career and you are command master chief, correct? That's your current rank. Yes. Okay. For those guys out there who don't know what that means, tell them what a command master chief is and does. So I'm the senior enlisted at the command and I'm also the principal advisor to the commanding officer. So I oversee all things enlisted at, at the command. Uh, the interesting thing with being the command master chief at, at EOD commands and special operations in general, I think you'll see at uh, special forces commands or uh, SEAL commands or, or any of those different types, uh, like special operations commands specifically, you'll see the the officers will do their their tours and they, they may leave and go do staff tours and come back and they'll do disassociated tours where the enlisted folks tend to stay and churn throughout our entire careers. So it's interesting when, when we come back 
in the in the commanding officer and executive officer and the command master chief, which is called the triad in the Navy. Mm-hmm. When we're together, the one with the most flight hours, per se, mm-hmm. to use a, a common term, is is really the command master chief because I'm the one that has normally is the one with the most operational time. Okay. So when it comes to you know, when we're looking at making decisions and, and inputs on a, a lot of the, the tactics, the operations and things like that, the one with the most, the wisdom, the, the, the crystallized intelligence that's been developed over the decades with all that exposure is usually your, your senior enlisted folks at the command. So that's a perfect segue into one of my first questions. So years and years and years ago, when I was first working in the defense industry, and I'm talking, I was in my early 20s, maybe mid-20s. Uh, I worked with a couple of retired master sergeants. Uh, and one of them looked at me one day and said, you know, Lauderdale, if I could have had you as a young uh, second lieutenant, I could have made something out of you. And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean? I would have been your superior officer. And they both just fell out laughing because they said, oh, no, you don't understand and then they explained to me about the role that the senior enlisted off of this, the NCOs play in developing good officers. And so the question I have for you is applicable to those of us in the business world and going to be with you too, as you transition in the business world, how do you lead when you're not the senior leader, when you're not in the lead chair, how does a, how did you lead someone who outranked you? but yet you were still able to be their leader and, and really almost give them orders. I mean, how do you develop that skill? What are some of the things that we can learn from that? Well, I think that goes back to, I, first and foremost, I always saw myself as like the servant leader mm-hmm. where, you know, I, I'm trying to, I lead up, I lead, you know, I'm leading horizontal and I'm, I'm leading down as well. And also trying to lead myself, because if I'm not buying what I'm leading, mm. what I'm what I'm putting out, then uh, I'm I'm not uh, using the self reflection and self awareness and things like that. Because I always, uh, even if I'm driving to work, I'm thinking about something, or if something happened during the day, I'm driving home, I'm reflecting on what happened that day. Maybe it was an interaction I had, or you know, I'm always critiquing myself, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. But if I'm not buying that, I'm not going to sell it. Uh, so I think I, I read the, the story, uh, you, you know, I think it's a guy author by the name of Greenleaf talks a lot about, uh, servant leadership and you know, just, you can, you can be an integral part of the team and not be the one, not be the, the one per se in charge. Mm-hmm but you're still, you're still in the lead. And then, you know, if, and when you're the one taken out, then sometimes you'll see that that organization will sometimes fall apart, sadly, but sometimes that happens. Uh, and then they recognize, wow, that guy was really that servant leader. And we just didn't even know he was the one that was leading that organization the whole time. Mm. So uh, you, you may or may not have had this situation, in your military career, but let's just say for the sake of discussion that here you are at at the end of your career, command master chief, and you get a young officer who maybe has two or three years in 
and y'all are in a meeting and some decision has to be made and he's just making absolutely the wrong one and and uh you've explained it to him uh you've given him the reasons why it's an incorrect decision but he yet he still demands to make it how do you handle that in that role well i really i really owe it to i, I believe i owe it to the, to them to mentor him okay and they're going to being the fact that, uh, you know, I have that role as a command master chief. If they've had good interactions with previous folks and hopefully they have senior enlisted along the way, I try to be, you know, that authenticity, that, that transparency with them and having that empathy with them mm-hmm. and building that relationship. They, they may not, it may not happen in that first interaction. It may not happen in that second interaction, but building that relationship with them mm. and being able to develop that sometimes over time, they, they may have uh, micro failures in this case, and hopefully you can hold them to that to where it's not going to be a, a, a large failure, but you can hold their hand, you know, hold them along the way to where it's micro failures and you steer them along the, the right course and then you get them going in the right direction, mm-hmm. give them that rudder guidance, we call it in the Navy, and, and get them going on the right path. And then they'll start seeing, you know, oh, hey, Master Chief was actually, he, he was telling me the right thing. I just I just need to listen to him. He so was telling me the right thing the whole time. You have to you have to earn their trust. Yes, absolutely. And and that doesn't happen overnight. And so sometimes as if, if we're not leading from the lead chair, and we're trying to help that senior leader or that key leader, whatever the situation is. And if, and if they blow us off one time, we can't write them off. We just have to understand that, 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 uh, trust is, we're just going to have to earn it. And there is no shortcut to that. No, there's definitely not. And once and the other thing is too, that needs to be emphasized. Once you, once you get it, you need to keep it because once you give it away, it's, it's very, very hard to get back. It's that's a Humpty Dumpty and it's almost diff, It's almost never going to be put back together again. Yeah. You Once can you lose that integrity piece. Mm-hmm. It's almost, it's almost impossible to get it back. And I, and I think that's a, that's a really key point to, for all of us, for all of us to, to gather in. So one question uh, that as I was reading through your stuff, I noticed you have you, while you've been in the Navy, you've earned undergraduate undergraduate and a master's degree, which in a lot of cases, uh, enlisted guys that I know, uh, did that and then went into the commission officers rank. They'd go to, uh, you know, OCS or whatever. Why did you choose to stay in the enlisted ranks when you had options? So when I did my undergrad, I was in E6 at the time. Mm-hmm. And the year, I think I earned it in, earned my undergrad in 2004. Okay. And I was selected for chief petty officer in 2005. And at that time, I I thought, well, chief petty officer is a pretty, it's a pretty huge milestone in mm-hmm. the Navy enlisted career path. And so I wanted to, I wanted to learn that. I wanted to experience that. And I wanted to, you know, get that leadership experience that that entails being that, you know, have that responsibility and, and gain that. And so as I was doing that, that's when I was that, uh, the chief on that team that was attached to the SEAL team. 
Okay. When we were deploying to Iraq. So as soon as I returned from that deployment, then I made senior chief. I actually got promoted. I didn't expect to, <laughs> but I got promoted as soon as I came back. Uh, and then, so I thought, well, uh, I should probably learn what it's like to do this rank for a little bit. Yeah. And so I, uh, I thought, well, I'll do this for a little bit and then I'll gain this experience. And then by the time the time just kind of got out of the way, your guy out from under, you know, got away from me. (laughs) And and then, you know, the next thing, you know, I'm, I'm, couple of the programs got taken away from the EOD career path. They got rid of uh, one of our uh, limited duty officer programs. Yeah. And I, th- I think I was, I thought I was too old for OCS, but then by the t- I think I was 42 and a half. By the time I found out I could have gotten a waiver, I think up till I was 42 or something like that. Oh, anyway, wow. I was, that was too late, but uh, then I was going to put in for another program and a couple of friends of mine were, they, they mentored me and said that I'd be a much better master chief anyway. So they, they kind of forcefully pushed me uh, in the direction that I ended up going anyway. And so, you know, and then during that time as well, I, I've really enjoyed being the senior enlisted yeah. of the EOD and the EOD community. I just really liked and enjoyed the impact mm-hmm. of what we were doing mm-hmm. and the experience that I had and being able to give back and we were i mean we we were really it was fast paced we were both in iraq and afghanistan we were deploying a lot we were so busy uh it was dangerous at the time yeah you know i I had i really felt like i had a lot to give to to train and develop folks as they were going over there Mm -hmm. um i just had a passion for it so Excellent. I just, I just wanted to stay in that churn, I think. Yeah. And that's, and I, I probably stayed in it a little bit too long. <laughs> no, but, uh, I, what I hear, I really you, enjoyed it. What I hear you saying is just because you, you can do something doesn't mean you have to, or you should, you had found fulfillment in doing what you were doing. And the thing I love that I just heard you say was you felt like you were making an impact on others. And that, and that because you were in that role, you were able to do that. And so you really didn't have any reason to change, you know, you, you had found your sweet spot. And so I think, again, that's something great for men to learn is find that sweet spot. And if you find it, you're going to know it. I mean, everybody talks all the time about, uh, you know, what am I supposed to do? And my, my thing is always try a lot of things. And I promise you, when you find that thing that you're meant to do, you'll know it. And, you know, I could probably, we could do a podcast on the the trials and tribulations I had to even get to graduating EOD school. That's a story in itself. But once I was there, I really wanted to be there and, and do that job. I just loved it so much. And that's a, uh, I just wanted to I just love the churn. I love the pace and I, and I love what we were doing. And I, I just felt it was really relevant. You have done something that most men like myself will never have to deal with. And that is leading men in combat situations, leading men when, uh, your decisions literally are life and death. I mean, we hear people use that phrase all the time. Oh, it's a matter of life and death. Well, most of the time it's not. 
but in your world it was. So through those situations, have did you develop any sort of a decision-making process or I guess what I'm saying is how do you make those decisions in that, in those settings without just freezing up worrying that you're making the wrong one because the stakes are so high? Well, we developed that through just repetition and training. We, we train and train and train and train and train until you just do it, uh, almost second nature. But I, I will say this, uh, I think anybody who says that going to war isn't scary or combat isn't scary is, is full of it or they're lying to you mm-hmm. because I was scared. I was scared every time, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's scary, you know, it's scary to go back and you get, you get kind of used to it when you, you know, after you're there for a little bit, I think, cause you come to, you come to terms with where you're at and what you're doing and your, your potential consequence. But I will say you, I used to say this, uh, uh, quite a bit, but I really learned, I learned more about myself going to war, I think, than I learned, you know, going through any bits of training or anything, you know, I just felt like, you know, you could look in your, you could look at yourself in the mirror for years and never really learn as much about yourself than you, than you do when you actually go to war and, and, and see, see who you really are. And it's, it's just, uh, it's very interesting to, to see. Well, see, you just mentioned something that most men are terrified of not war, but finding out who they really are. Right. It's yes. I mean, it, it, most men, I think if we're honest with ourselves would say that's terrifying to put myself in a position where I'm really going to find out what I'm made of. Uh, that's more terrifying than the actual conditions. I mean, it is yes. to me. I mean, that's more terrifying to me than even getting shot at is having to face the possibility that I might fail. Yes, but that's, that was the, that was the looking in the, that was, that was looking in the mirror. That was the being in combat where you, you, you actually really see who you are, see what you're made of. And that's, that's a lot of self-reflection right there, <laughs> all wrapped up into, you know, your, your first, even your first combat operation. I mean, you're scared, there's no doubt about it. I don't care who you are, well, especially your first combat operation, because there's no more training timeouts. There's no, mm. there's nobody on the sidelines blowing a whistle anymore. It's real. And then the enemy gets a vote and you know, it, it, it just, it's real. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've got a lot of friends that have served in a variety of settings, uh, combat related. And, um, they all say the same thing. I've never once had anybody say they weren't terrified not once i I have never when when they're whether it's maybe they don't say it publicly but when we've been together and just in conversation i've never had anybody say it's it, it was it was scary and and i don't see how you could not be scared 
but I guess that's where the training kicks in, right? It that's how you overcome it and you keep doing your job is just because you've 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 built it into yourself, you built that muscle memory for lack of a better term, that that's what helps you go on autopilot to disassociate yourself with the situation that you're in. That and I think I had this or and I still do. I I have this uh this deep desire to not fail the person to the left and the right of me. Oh. I was just not going to fail. I, I was whatever it took. I was, you know, I was going to do whatever it takes to, to not fail those guys I was with and, you know, whatever, whatever it took, mm-hmm. you know, whatever was put in front of me, whatever the mission was, um, that's, that's what I was going to do. And, uh, and, and I want thing. men to tie back into that. Uh, you know, I, I say my life is kind of built around, a foundation of three things and 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 one of those uh you know they go do what's right do my best and put others first and, and i think as men when we you're talking about putting others first i mean because you were just like it, it it's not about me failing me it's failing these two guys on the other side of me who are depending on me yes right and yes. And, and i think there's so much to be said for that and and i really wish given our current climate, uh, our socioeconomic, our social climate, man, how much better would the world be if we worried about just doing what's right for the people on either side of us? I, I completely agree with you. You know, and they, you know, I wish, I wish I could say, I wish I could boil it down and say I was doing it for the country or doing it for the leadership and everything like that. But it, it really, boils down to i was just doing it because of the 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 guys that were with me you know and just to make sure that we all came home you know doing everything we could just to make sure that we all came home and that's that's all that matter i mean for me again i've never served so i i'm speaking completely hypothetical but i'd like to think that would be my overarching uh goal is all the people that I'm responsible for as a leader that we all go home together. Yes. And, and fortunately for me, and I don't know how I got lucky. Uh, my guys all came home, especially on that one. They all came home. We were lucky. We were over there during the surge and we all came home. Every one of us. Oh my gosh. Well, that's a, that's something that we can all be thankful for. So, now you're getting toward the end of your career and you're about to transition and, uh, you're about to work on your PhD in leadership, correct? Yes. My doctorate. Yes. So I'm curious, um, you are obviously a boots on the ground, hands on, uh, practitioner of whatever it is that you do, whether it's disarming bomb, you know, whatever you said, that's one of the reasons you like staying in enlisted ranks is you got to be more hands on. So, what are you hoping to, or how do you plan to apply what you learn during your process of, of finishing your PhD? Well, I like the, the part of taking the practical leadership experience that I've gained over my almost 30 years in the military and applying it into the academic context. And I did my master's in strategic leadership and it it seemed like a Pandora's box. So every time I would start to read something, 
I would start to connect, you know, a couple of dots here and a couple of dots here and some of the theories and would overlap with me. And I would start to think of leadership experiences I had and I would write them down and, and in the margins of the books that I had, I would put, you know, maybe a date or something like that that I could expand upon when I would write my papers and things like that. So a lot of the things that I'm reading about in the program that I'm in, I'm really just taking my a lot of my history and applying it to the leadership in, in academic context. So it's kind of, it's, it's fun, but it's also, you know, thankfully it's not astrophysics where I don't know anything about it. And I'm really trying to just understand it and figure <laughs> it out where, you know, here I'm just trying to go, Oh, well, I get what they're saying here because oh, I've done that. And here's the instances where I've experienced this. I just didn't know that's what they called it. So, and then, being able to put that into a story format somewhat is, is uh, it makes it, there's a lot of work to it, but it's, it makes it, it's a lot easier for me to do it and, and process it in my mind. I think you guys coming from a military context, especially those of you who have been in, 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 in theater in combat situations, bring something extra to leadership. Cause I'm sitting here thinking about some of the great leadership books I've read and a lot of them uh, our military guys, uh, Jerome Powell's book, um, uh, this work for me, if you haven't read it, highly recommended, uh, that great, great book, uh, Jocko Willink. I don't know if you know who Jocko is. He's written some good stuff and does a great podcast. Yes. I, uh, he was actually at, uh, trade at one when I was at trade at two, when I was working for Naval special warfare group two on mm-hmm. the East coast, he was running, special warfare training detachment one on the West coast. Oh, okay. That's cool. Uh, there's, a uh, another guy named Tim Kennedy. That's more from the army side in special forces world. And, um, uh, a guy who is just, do you know who David Goggins is? I do. He's a, he's a seal. He's, he's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, nuts. he's extreme, but I love, I love listening to him because as I read, all of these guys and I listen to their podcast again, I go back to how we started this interview. They're all just standard issue people who decided to do something extraordinary. And, and I think as men, we need that as inspiration and also instruction because, um, you know, I hear people all the time, uh, they'll ask me about somebody I've had on the podcast or, you know, or whatever. And I've been fortunate to, to interview some really cool folks, but all of those folks or a lot of those folks, I I know on a deeper level and they've all written books. Right. And so when people ask me, well, how do I, how should I learn that? I say, go buy, go buy general Powell's book or go buy Andy Andrews. Who's a buddy of mine's book or, you know, whoever it is. And I said, because here's what I know about them. They're not holding back. When they write, right. they when they wrote that book, they they put everything they know into it. Arlie um, Army, uh, the late great uh, DI from from the Marine Corps, wrote a book. I said, all these guys, they're not holding anything back from you. And so, as men, we have all this ability to learn how to do it. We just we got to put some time into it. We, we can't just get a shot of leadership and then get 
you know, we're instant leaders, but all the information is out there. And so I'm really happy that you're going to be doing this in an environment, in an academic environment to pass some of those lessons on, because, uh, if you end up teaching in a university setting, I'm a firm believer that men between 18 and 25 should be, or, or, or they are the answer to a lot of the problems that our world is, is dealing with that that's the age group where they're still, the brain is not fully formed, but yet they're the most susceptible to teaching and right teaching and being around men like you and, and to learn these lessons. And so I, I'm really excited to hear that a guy like you is going to be out there. Cause I, I just think you guys have something special to teach us all. And I think, you know, you bring up some great points. I think they're, whether you're in the military or you're in industry, the common denominator is you're leading people. And that's, that's the thing. And mm-hmm. that, that what motivates folks in the military and what motivates folks in, in the corporate world or wherever, it, it, it's pretty much all the same. It, it's, it, it's just, uh, it's just people and, and it all translates. It's, 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 uh, it works across all platforms, I believe. Well, it does. And I think the one thing that does cross all forms of leadership and I've been a leader. Uh, I was a pastor for 11 years. I've been head of civic organizations and I've led in the business world. And the one common denominator across all those platforms and all those theaters of leading is the people that you're leading have to know that you care about them. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and if they know that they they will forgive a lot of mistakes that you made, but more importantly, they will have your back. Yes. Yeah. There's a, uh, there was a speaker we had at the senior enlisted Academy when I went through up in uh, Newport, Rhode Island and by the name of, uh, retired Colonel Art Athens, he was a phenomenal speaker and he used to be out of, I don't know if he's still there or not, but he was at the Stockdale center of excellence at the U S Naval Academy. Okay. Phenomenal speaker. But, uh, one of his three, three things that he said were competence, courage, and compassion, the three C's. That's the thing that he, he would always put those out and, you know, competence, uh, know your job or are you striving to learn it and courage? Are you ready to make the right decision? You know, whether, whether, you know, it, it may harm you personally, whether it's, you know, whether it may cost you personally and the compassion is, do you care as much about, about your people as you care about yourself mm. and always I, I love just those three things he put out and i go on youtube every now and then and, and they're from his videos are from like 2012 or 2014 and i go on there and i listen to his videos just he, he inspires me what's the He's, gentleman's name again i'm sorry art athens just like the city in in greece he, he's a well, phenomenal speaker phenomenal the, storyteller or the city that i grew up in athens alabama i should be able athens, to remember I, that Yes, but, sir. <laughs> but I love that three C's because I learned three C's of hiring years ago. And every time I followed these three C's, I made great hires. And every time I violated even one of them, it was a colossal failure. And it's character, chemistry, and competency. If you don't have great I like character, it. I don't want you on my team. I don't care how good you are at your job. Right. And then the chemistry, I don't want to bring some knucklehead in who's already going to ruin a good team that we've already got working. I mean, it, it just, again, it may not, you may be great at what you do, but if you can't 
make yourself part of this team, then you're just going to be a disaster. And then the last is competency. People always ask me, well, why do you do the competency last? I said, real simple. If you've got great character and you've got, and you're great with the chemistry part of it, if there's something lacking in your skill set, we can send you to school for that. That's the, that's fixable. That's the easiest thing, but I can't fix bad character. No, that the character thing has weighed in a lot on some of my disciplinary decisions as a command master chief quite a bit. It's usually the character piece, or did you just make a, a bad decision? Usually I could put them in those two bins Yeah, and you go to, to re- refer it to the commanding officer and I would put them in one or the other. Did they just make a bad decision or is this a character problem? And, and I think that's right. And I think the way you do that is you look at their overall trajectory. Yes. You look at it in totality, you know, but that's where you got to have that compassion part that the Colonel was talking about, because if not, if you just, if you don't bring that into it and you just look at it in a black and white situation, you're, you as the, the officer in charge are probably not going to make a right decision. But if you sit there and take the time to go, okay, wait a minute. Now, what has been my overall experience with this guy or what have the people that he's worked for and worked with thought about him? Right. I mean, you, you, you start taking that into account and you make a much better decision. Oh yeah. You have to weigh each case in its own merit. Absolutely. That's good. All right. Well, we are, uh, uh, going on and on, but I, I want to make sure I get my, my big three questions asked. And these are everybody that comes on the podcast gets to, gets to answer these questions. And so we're going to start off. We'll, we'll do the first question. What has surprised you the most so far in your life? I think what has surprised me the most in life is that I have lived something that I have never dreamed of. As a kid from Parkersburg, West Virginia, that I never dreamed where I would be at right now. I, I couldn't have, I couldn't have written this. I, I could have never have dreamed it. I could have never or dreamt it. I've, I could have, there's, I, I just, and I eventually tried to put it into context of just, especially later on in my, you know, in my career that I just try to work hard and create opportunities. And then if when those opportunities present themselves, just try to go after them and then see where that takes you. And that's kind of worked out for me. I'm not a five-year, 10-year planner. So I don't even, I don't know where I'm going to be next year or the year after that. We'll see where I go. You know, so I, 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 it's amazing. Like I remember my grandfather, the same one that recommended that I go in the military I remember him telling me, you know, I've lived a life that I never thought I would ever live. And I've gone to see places and done things I never could imagine. And I, that's me. I'm only 48. And I, I can say that right now. He said it to me at about the age of 65. Wow. And, and uh, I mean, everything else is, is gravy. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've lived through some pretty <laughs> scary things. I still feel like I'm on bonus time already. So uh, everything else is, is great right now. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So question number two, who taught you the most about being a man and what did they teach you? 
Well, that's a good one. I would say I, I looked at both my father and my grandfather both um, for for both. My grandfather definitely instilled a work ethic out in the hayfield. You know, <laughs> been there. <laughs> to uh, and that that definitely you know helps you along the way, especially, you know, going through types of special operations training and things like that to where, you know, you, you just get to the next evolution, the next evolution, the next evolution. You're not looking to, you know, you don't look down the road. You just look to get through the next, you know, that next day or just to get the hay put up or just mm-hmm. get to lunch, mm-hmm. just to get you that, that fried bologna sandwich or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> and then you're going to get back out and get after it, you know, uh, that was, that was my grandfather. Um, but my, my dad, he instilled, uh, if I started something, I was never allowed to quit it. Mm. If I started a sport, it didn't matter what that sport was. If I was getting mopped on the, on the field, cause I was, a, I was a pretty little kid, uh, up until about eighth grade. So when I played tackle football my first year, uh, let's just say, I got destroyed and I did not enjoy it. Uh, but I was not allowed to quit. So mm. I, I got to, I got to build a little bit of resiliency. Let's just say, and mm-hmm. that was through my father never letting me quit anything that I started. And that continued on, you know, and, and helped me through you know, some of the training I had to go through as well. You know, so I went to EOD school, I thought I was pretty tough and pretty smart, and I just found I was just too dumb to quit. So, <laughs> just kidding. But, but you know, you're saying the same. Your 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 dad and your grandfather really taught you the same thing, and that is just don't quit. I mean, sometimes as men, the best way to handle a situation is just to get through it. Yes. Just whatever it is. There's there's no cutesy way. There's no cutesy answer I can give you. There's no no magic formula sometimes it just sucks and you've just got to work through the suck because you got to know in the back of your mind it's not going to suck forever and that's probably why i mean one of my favorite books is uh man search for meaning i don't know if you've ever read it you probably I have, have. i haven't it's by a man named victor frankel and yeah. he uh he was a survivor of the holocaust it's a it's an outstanding book of an audio but uh, it puts a lot of that into context. It's a phenomenal book. That's really good. Okay, last question. If I could take the DeLorean from back to the future and put it out in your driveway, stick you in the driver's seat and punch in the date of your 18th birthday on the little keypad and send you back to where you're sitting across the table from 18-year-old Mike Riggs, what would you tell him? Slow down and enjoy the ride. It's going to be fun. Take a lot of notes. Invest a little bit more wisely. Yeah. You don't need all those. Every time you come back from a combat deployment and you lived, you don't have to buy a new car just because you lived. You don't have to do that. You don't have to You don't have to give that prize yourself. I know a lot of guys that do that, and I'm one of them. But Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, we don't have to do that. That but is. enjoy enjoy it. It, it, it. I should have taken more pictures because I'm not a picture guy. 
and I should have taken more pictures because my wife's now telling me, Hey, we need to get some pictures and stuff for your retirement ceremony. And I'm like, I don't, I don't have any. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't have hardly any pictures. <laughs> well, so. I mean, uh, I, I, I get it. I, I understand. So before I let you go, I know since you're still active duty, you need to make a disclaimer for the Navy folks to, to be happy with you. So I want to make sure that I let you do that while it's on the air and everybody will be happy with both of us. Okay. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. I just, uh, wanted to remind you that I'm here and I was just speaking about my personal experience in the Navy and I'm not an official spokesman for, for the Navy. And, uh, that's about it. I appreciate, uh, I, w- I wasn't going to speak about any politics or government policy and I really appreciate you having me. Thank you, man. I appreciate your time and, uh, let's do this again. Yeah, absolutely. Look forward to it. We can talk about my, uh, my road to EOD. That's a, that's a podcast in itself. There's some trials and tribulations in there. That's oh. a, that's a long one. <laughs> Definitely. We will, we will, uh, we will do that. Well, all right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Mike for his time. Uh, I had a blast talking with him. Man, this guy is so sharp. Uh, We actually talked for about another hour once we finished the interview and decided that when his retirement is uh, official in June, we're going to get back together and do another round uh, because there were some things that he really brought out that we didn't get a chance to cover in the time that we had, but uh, really want to pick his brain uh, this is a guy who's been there, done that. When it comes to leading men, he knows things to help all of us who lead men uh, that he's learned under the pressures of combat. And, um, and and I think they just have so much to teach us. So thanks again to Mike. Thanks again to you for listening. And I'll see you next time on the Playbook for Men show. Playbook for Men.